Uh, this Lord's Day, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 26 as we continue in our study of God's Word and continue walking through Matthew. Uh, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel for about two years now and uh, drawing towards the end of that as we now come to the second part of the trial of King Jesus. Uh, as you turn there, just let me say a word of thanks to all of you who helped out with our trunk party this week. Uh, we had a great turnout, had about four to 500 kids here and uh, if you're here because you came this week, we want to welcome you to Bloomfield Baptist Church. Uh, but thanks for those who helped put that together and were a part of that. I uh, also want to say thanks to the folks who have been volunteering and the kids involved in our Junior Bible Quiz. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, we have some kids who uh, participate in Junior Bible Quiz meets uh, once a month or so where they go and uh, they learn God's Word and then they have an opportunity to, to quiz on that. And uh, We had a tournament yesterday up in Louisville and our kids did very well. And uh, So I want to congratulate them. And uh, parents, if you're interested in Junior Bible Quiz, they meet from 5 to 6 on Sunday evenings before the rest of our Sunday evening programming. And they, you can have kids jump in even tonight if they'd like to come and learn more about that. But congratulations to our kids uh, on how well you did yesterday. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 will be our text for today. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we are now in the hours leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, we looked at the first part of Jesus' trial. We looked last week at a comparison between Peter and Judas and how they responded both to failing Jesus, but how Peter was repentant and Judas was not. And today we're going to pick back up in Matthew's Gospel, looking at verse 11. And as I read this this morning, let's remember that this is the inspired Word of God. Uh, this has authority in our lives. Uh, God is speaking to us now through His Word, and this is what it says. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with the righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? They all shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Father, we have lifted our voices to you as we have sang and as we have prayed and Lord, now we have heard your voice through your word, so help us, Lord, to respond to it. Help us in these moments to come to understand it more, 
And Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work among us, calling us to repentance and faith in response to what we see in your word. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, perhaps you have a situation like uh, we, we have in our home, uh, in the way we respond to things, the way we describe things, uh, particularly if we're trying to give a summary of something. Um, every once in a while, if Sandy and I are watching TV, one of us might fall asleep, and uh, if she falls asleep and wakes up and says, all right, tell me what's happening, I might say something like, well, that guy's bad, that guy's good, and that's it. However, if I fall asleep and wake up and say, tell me what's happening, uh, to summarize the 13 minutes that have passed, we might be there for quite a while. We, we have different ways of summarizing things. Uh, for the sake of our time this morning, I'm going to use my way to summarize where we've been in Matthew so far. Uh, essentially, when we began in Matthew some two years ago, we began with Matthew 1, looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, something that, that stands out is that Jesus comes from a kingly line. King David is where that genealogy goes back to. It, it points to how Jesus is a descendant of the king. And as you continue in Matthew, you see that he's not just a descendant of the king, but he is the one true king. He's the Messiah. And so when you get to Matthew chapter 2, you see the wise men coming from the east, and they came specifically to worship him who is the king of the Jews. We see that this kingly title was a threat specifically to Herod, who they had inquired about Jesus of. And so we see a, a massacre takes place there in Matthew 2, where Herod uh, essentially kills all the children under the age of two, all the, uh, the boy children and male children, because he, he does not want a threat to his rule. We see how Matthew, uh, Matthew tells us that Joseph and Mary then take Jesus, they flee to Egypt, they later return, he grows. And, and then we see... Uh, this king being heralded in by his cousin, John the Baptist, who comes to prepare the way for the kingdom, who, who calls people to repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming, and we, we see that king then enter into his ministry. He, he goes out to the wilderness. He's tempted by the enemy who, who wants to, to attack him as king, and yet he doesn't succumb to that attack. And he succeeds where others had failed because he is the one true king. He is the Messiah. And we then walk through Matthew's gospel, and essentially what we've seen is this, is that King Jesus is calling people to follow Him. King Jesus is healing people. King Jesus is performing miracles. He, he is the one true King. He is the Messiah. And yet, uh, there are people who are threatened by Him as King. Specifically, what we've seen through Matthew's gospel is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, the, the religious leaders of that day. Jesus was a threat to their authority. And so we see as early as Matthew chapter 12, them conspiring against him, how to destroy him. Now, this is the theme we find all the way up until where we've been in recent weeks. That they want to destroy Jesus. They are looking for opportunity to destroy Jesus. And now that opportunity has found them. We saw in Matthew 26, there's, there's one among the disciples who they find who will betray Jesus. His name is Judas and You'll remember as we, we studied Judas that there seems to be a turning point in Judas's heart at that meal when he's there and, and this woman comes and she pours out a very expensive ointment perfume to, to anoint Jesus and Judas along with the other disciples are, are upset that this has been wasted because they thought it had great value and it could have been sold and that money could have been given to the poor and yet the gospel writers help us understand that Judas isn't so concerned about the poor. Judas gets concerned about his own pockets. Judas is a 
person who had been stealing from the treasury, stealing from the money that they had in order for his own personal gain. And so it would seem that when it becomes obvious that his following Jesus is no longer going to pad his pockets, we see that his heart then is turned and, and he goes to the religious leaders and he says, what will you give me to betray him? And it's that betrayal leading up to that arrest, leading up to that trial and ultimately to the crucifixion. That, that's where we find ourselves this Lord's Day in Matthew. As we talked about already, uh, Jesus' trial had multiple parts and th- there was the aspect that went before uh, the, 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 the church in essence. It went, it went before the, the religious leaders, before the Sanhedrin, before Caiaphas and and now we see it going before uh, the, the, the civil aspect of the trial, before the, the government, the Roman authorities, before this man named Pilate. So we're going to look at this this morning, and as we do, I just want to point out, kind of like we did last week, some contrasts we see here in the Scripture. Last week we looked at how, how different Peter and Judas were. They, they were similar and they both failed, but it was greatly different in how they responded to their failure. We see Peter repenting and ultimately trusting in Christ as the payment for his sin. And yet we see Judas feeling sorry, remorseful, and yet seeking to cover his own sin with his own blood by taking his own life. Two very different responses. We see in our own lives we can respond that same way. We can trust Christ or we can trust ourselves. And and we'll see that theme play out as we look at the text this morning. But I want to begin by looking at the contrast we see here between Jesus and Pilate. And we see this, and I place this in your notes, that... What we find in verses 11 through 14 is a a cruel tyrant confronting a compassionate king. A cruel tyrant confronting a compassionate king. And we don't know a lot about Pilate from the text up to this point. We know in verse 2 that he's the the governor. We have to look to the other gospels as well as church record and church history and historical records of this day among Jewish people to get a, a fuller picture of who Pilate is. It's very easy for us to get a perspective just based on Matthew that Pilate was, was kind of a good guy. He didn't want to crucify Jesus. He's trying to find a way not to do this. And yet what we find throughout the records is that Pilate was a particularly cruel tyrant. Uh, he, he was given authority uh, to go in and to rule this specific area. He, he was a Roman ruler uh, given authority over this area of Judea. And most of these governors who preceded them, him they would try to appease the Jewish people in some way. The Jewish people had their customs, they had their God, they had their belief, and and so the Roman authorities wouldn't always just step on that. They would kind of tiptoe around it, they would seek to to govern them in a way they would follow, and yet we see Pilate is one who seems to care very little about what the Jewish people believe or about their tradition or about their God. In fact, history tells us that when Pilate enters into Judea to, to rule he comes in bearing flags with the image of Tiberius Caesar on them. He sets these up around the town. And, and in that day, that was greatly offensive because essentially he was saying, this is who you're going to worship now. And so the Jewish people rose up and they, they revolted. He wasn't anticipating that. He finds that they're willing to die for this. And so he, he relents and he takes those flags down. But, but he wasn't done pushing against the religious community there. Uh, history tells us that he goes into the temple and he, he essentially steals, he takes from the temple funds money to then use to build an aqueduct in the city. It, it, the people are not happy about that at all. You can imagine if somebody were to walk in this morning after we collected our offering and they were to say, well guys, stoplights aren't working so well in Nelson County and so we're just going to take this to go fix those. You probably wouldn't be very happy about that. We wouldn't be very pleased with that. 
was a far greater issue in Jesus' day because the people then are revolting against Pilate. And yet Pilate, history tells us, anticipated a revolt this time. So he has his soldiers disguise themselves as commoners, go out among the people, and when this mob starts to form, they essentially take off their disguise and they turn and they attack the people and they slaughtered many of them. So when you look at the relationship between Pilate and the religious community of his day, specifically these Jewish leaders, there's, there's great tension here. Uh, this is not a lot of love between these two, and yet the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they, they needed Pilate. They needed his authority if they were going to fulfill their plans to have Jesus destroyed, to have Jesus crucified. And so you see accommodation happening here, and it's not just between those religious leaders, it's also on Pilate's end because Pilate needed to try to mend and make some peace. He had gone far too far, history tells us, and so he's pulling back now, trying to mend this relationship with the Jewish community. And yet what we find in the text here is that Pilate essentially doesn't doesn't come in with anything against Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to be his enemy. The other gospel accounts tells us Tell us that the the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and they presented three charges concerning Jesus. The charges were that he was misleading the nation, that he was forbidding them to give tribute, to give taxes to Caesars, that he was saying that he himself was king. Now, Pilate probably knew enough and had enough people telling him information to know that some of these accusations were very clearly wrong. Uh, For example, when they accused Jesus of of telling them you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, Pilate very easily could have heard from someone who had been there when Jesus is accused of this. And Jesus says, no, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. He he essentially said, you you give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Whose inscription's on this coin? It's Caesar to give it to Caesar then. He, He didn't tell them not to pay taxes to Caesar as they accused him. And so Pilate's able to sort through those things, but it seems it's the third accusation that Christ was calling himself a king that Pilate inquires about. And we see that in verse 11 where it says that Pilate, the governor, asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds to him as we saw him respond to Caiaphas. He says, You have said so. When we looked at that text, we talked about how this is not Jesus being ambiguous or or kind of dancing around an answer. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, I am exactly who you say I am, and yet you don't fully understand what you're even saying. And so with Caiaphas, he said, you have said so, and he goes on to say, and I'm going to come in the clouds, and I'm going to judge, and, and you don't understand quite what you're dealing with here. And in essence, that's kind of what he's saying here to Pilate. You have said so, yes, Pilate, I'm the king, but... I'm I'm much more than a king of just these people politically here and now. I'm a king who reigns. And we're going to see that as we follow through the text. But, But then what happens kind of catches Pilate off guard because after he responds to Pilate, he doesn't respond to the chief priests and the elders. Now they start to hurl accusations at him. We can imagine these accusations are in line with what we've already seen in Matthew. They're false uh, they're lies, and they're saying all these things about Jesus. And Jesus, as he does before Caiaphas and now before Pilate, he remains silent. And notice how Pilate responds to that. It says that, that he is greatly amazed. And he's amazed that here's one who's being accused. Indications from the text are that, that Pilate knows that it's really out of envy, so these are probably false accusations anyways. And yet he's saying nothing. 
You think about how you respond, how I respond when, when we are falsely accused. Are we silent? <laughs> no. I mean, imagine this morning. You get done with church. The pastor preaches way too long. You're hungry. So you, you go next door to Bar Smart and you see that bag of chocolate donuts. And you think, you know what? I hadn't had a bag of chocolate donuts in a while. So this story is now about you, not me, because I have. But you see these chocolate donuts and... And you look out the window and there's a police officer there. And the police officer sees you seeing the chocolate donuts. And so you pick up the chocolate donuts, you go to the cash register, you pay for them, you put the receipt in your pocket, you start to walk out the door, and this officer stops you and says, Hey, excuse me, I didn't see you pay for those donuts. Maybe he had turned for a moment, maybe his vision was blocked, but what he saw was you picked up the donuts, he turns, he looks back, you're walking out with the donuts, and so he accuses you of stealing the chocolate donuts. What would you do? Do you just smile at him and say nothing? No. That, that would imply that you're guilty. You would reach in your pocket, you would pull out the receipt, you would say, there, I paid for the chocolate donuts, now let me go enjoy my chocolate donuts. You, you would say something. When, when we're accused, especially falsely, we defend ourselves. When we're accused rightly, we defend ourselves. Now, you and I have been in many situations where we did something wrong, and we know we did something wrong. And someone comes at us, and they catch us, and they say, did you do this? What do we do? We, we just start to talk and talk and talk, thinking somehow we will roundabout get out of it some way. We just talk. And so how amazing is it that here's Jesus, who is innocent, who did nothing wrong, who was righteous, who was God, and they're hurling these false accusations at him. And with a mere glance, he could end it. And he says nothing. And even to a pagan ruler like Pilate, it catches him off guard. And he is amazed and he is astonished. Because he realizes something's happening here. And maybe he doesn't fully realize what it is, but the scripture helps us understand what it is. The Scripture helps us understand that, that Jesus is silent for a reason. See, when we look at the account of the trial, of the crucifixion of Christ, we, we see the sovereignty of God all over this. We see His hand, His purposes in it. We've seen in Matthew how the chief priests and the rulers' intention wasn't even to arrest Jesus during this feast, and yet that's exactly when they arrest Him. Why? Because that's when Judas betrayed Him, and it seems this plan is now coming together, and yet there's a plan that's been in existence long before this. It's a plan that we get a glimpse of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall where we see God giving the consequence of sin, the consequence of the fallout, and He says to the serpent, I'm going to place enmity between the, the, the woman's offspring and your offspring and, and an offspring is going to come from her and it's going to crush your head. And he is pointing towards the cross. And that plan has been in place since the foundation of time and now it is unfolding. And we see it here. And in it we see Jesus' silence serves a purpose. We saw part of this verse earlier. Let me read it to you again. Isaiah 53. Isaiah is speaking prophetically of the Messiah that would come. It says in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. 
like a lamb that was led to slaughter, like sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. The Scripture says that the Messiah is going to come not to bear His sin. He will have no sin, but to bear our sin. He will get on that cross and He will be silent as a sheep led to slaughter. He will take our place. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. And we see Pilate is... There's an uneasiness as we look at this in other gospel accounts with this, with the silence. He's amazed. He's also trying to figure out, what do I do with this? The indication from the text would be he doesn't just want to turn around and hand Jesus over. And so we see things in the other gospel accounts, like when he he learns Jesus is from Galilee, he sends him to Herod because he has jurisdiction over that region, thinking, well, well, this is Herod's problem now, and yet it comes right back to him. We see in this text, for example, he's very troubled because his wife has had a dream, maybe a nightmare about what's going to unfold. And she said, listen, I don't want you involved in this. So it would seem that Pilate's trying to get out of it as much as he can, and yet he's trying to find a way. And then it seems an opportunity presents itself. And we'll look briefly at that now. And as we do, the, the second contrast, the second point we see here is that relating to Barabbas, who the text tells us is a notorious revolutionary. And we'll see here how the crowd chooses him over Christ, our eternal king. See, it says there's a custom in verse 15 that the governor released for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And then it tells us there's this notorious prisoner named Barabbas. If you read the other gospel accounts, you get a fuller picture of who Barabbas was. Some accounts say he was a robber. Others say that he was an insurrectionist. Others say he was a murderer. And you kind of piece all these together and you get a picture that Barabbas was one who had probably revolted. He was probably someone of a revolutionary and and he had pushed back against the Roman authorities. Perhaps he had led a, a mob and a revolt and in that process he had killed someone. Uh, He was an insurrectionist. He was pushing back against the authority of Rome. And so he is arrested. Murder was a capital offense. He is now going to go and die for what he's done. And Pilate looks at him and says, Well, I can offer up this murderer. I can offer up Jesus who's not done anything wrong. Perhaps he's thinking they'll obviously pick Jesus, but he's mistaken because we find in the text that not only are the religious leaders telling the crowd... Call for Barabbas, call for Barabbas. We, we find in the other text that Barabbas is probably somewhat of a, a hero to some of them. That, that this was the kind of ruler they wanted. Now they wanted somebody who was going to step on the, the head of Rome and, and who was going to rule then, who was going to push back against that. And it seems that's what they found in Barabbas. And so we see that, that they choose him over choosing Christ. Incidentally, it's interesting when you look at the text to think about this. We, we see Barabbas is called a robber, the same Greek term used for robbers, the term we use, see used for robber when it describes the two men who were crucified alongside Jesus. When you look at that account and you look historically, you realize that the Roman authorities didn't just have crucifix all over the place waiting to put somebody on them. They, they prepared them, kind of like you would see in a, an old western, how they're making the, 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 the setting for someone to be hanged. They're, they're building the gallows there. They, they would put together this crucifix. They would arrange the cross. They would be ready because they have someone in mind they're going to crucify. And we know from the text that Jesus' trial was hurried. It was so quick they would have likely not had much time to prepare for that. And so it would seem that this crucifix, these three crucifix, were prepared specifically for three criminals. Perhaps three robbers, three insurrectionists. 
Perhaps Barabbas was a cohort of these other two men and they were all three scheduled to be crucified on that hill. And yet we know in the text Barabbas won't make it there because someone's going to go in his place. In part, in God's sovereign plan, the reason he's going to go is because this crowd calls out for a temporal ruler instead of an eternal king. They want someone who's going to be king now, who's going to rule now, who's going to push back against the authorities now. They, they want something, they want it now, and so they, they choose that over Christ, who the text tells us will be an eternal king and who will reign forever. I think they do exactly what you and I are prone to do. You see, we, like the crowd, are prone to pick the, the temporal, that which satisfies us now, over that which... God has given us for eternity. Like Adam and Eve in that garden who were given the opportunity to be in that garden in perfect fellowship with God for all of eternity, that they want that apple, that, that fruit. They want, they want that one forbidden fruit that they are told not to take because it's a reminder to them that they don't have dominion over everything. They've got dominion over this garden. And God says, don't eat of that. But they want to be like God. They, they want something. They want it now so they eat of it. You see that theme run throughout the Scripture. You see, for example, Jacob and Esau. And Esau has this birthright, which was a wonderful, blessed thing in Jewish families. And yet he comes in and he's hungry. And his brother has some food there. And he he makes this exchange. Here, you can have this stew if I can have your birthright. And in in a moment, he loses everything. And we see that throughout Scripture. We see it in our lives. We We want... What we desire now, we have little thought what God has prepared for us for eternity. And yet we see in the gospel and we see in Christ the call of one who in the face of temporal pleasure had no sin and now he reigns eternally. And he prepares a place for us eternally as well. And we see that in this exchange as they call out for Barabbas. And so we see as the story plays out that Pilate realizes that he's not going to be able to hand Jesus free. He's going to have to send him to the cross. And as he does that, we see one last comparison I want to note. It's this, that the guilty then declares himself innocent, while the innocent bears the guilt of all. Verse 24, Pilate sees that he can gain nothing, rather a riot's going to happen. So he, he takes water and he washes his hands before the crowd... And he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. I want you to consider for a second. Roman governors did not have a practice of washing their hands like this ceremonially. In fact, we've looked at this before in the text, how in Jesus' day, people weren't washing their hands before meals. Germs, they didn't even know about germs yet. That The hand washing was ceremonial, an act of saying that, that you're clean. And, and that's why the, the, the religious leaders come to Jesus and say of his disciples... Well, why don't you wash your hands? They're not saying, look at you, you're just dirty people. They're saying, this is what you do if you're really clean before God. You let everybody know how clean you are, and you wash your hands, and you hold them to heaven because you're clean. And so Pilate here is taken from that tradition, perhaps because of those around him, thinking, well, I can just do this too. So he he washes his hands, he holds them up, and he says, look at me, I am clean. This isn't on me. And then he says to them, 
Same phrase we saw not long ago when Judas goes to the religious leaders and he says, I am guilty, Jesus is innocent. They say, see to it yourself. They essentially say, Judas, this is your problem. Pilate here washes his hands. He says, listen, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. He declares himself innocent. But he can't declare himself innocent. And we can't declare ourselves innocent either. And yet, friends, you and I and others have fallen into this notion, this thought that that somehow, maybe through our good works, maybe through our good intentions, maybe through what we give or what we say, that somehow we will one day stand before God and say, look God at what I did, my hands are now clean. And our hands will be no cleaner than Pilate's hands. The blood of Christ is on him, and it's on these people, and it's on every one of us. The Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Scripture says there's none righteous, not even one. No one does good. You think that's you this morning? You think you're righteous before a holy God that you're going to stand before Him in your own efforts and say, well, God, I, I wasn't so bad. I never killed anybody. I mean, I knew some scoundrels and I was nothing like them. And yet you'll stand there. Maybe your hands might look a little clean, but your heart won't. The Scripture tells us that we are depraved and we are lost and we will not stand before holy God and declare our innocence. Only one who is innocent can do that. The only one we see in the Scripture that meets that is Christ Jesus. The Scripture says, though He knew no sin of His own, He became sin on our part, that, that He might take our penalty on the cross and that we might receive the righteousness of God. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's something the Scripture tells us. It is a free gift from a holy God by grace through faith for all those who will believe. And that is why when Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and 3, He doesn't come and say, listen guys, let me teach you how to clean your hands today. You know, he's not like the school nurse who shows up to class and says, alright, here's the antibacterial. So let's really learn how to clean. Let's wash our hands properly. Jesus comes in and says... Your heart is wicked and depraved. You think you're not a murderer? Have you ever called somebody a liar? You're a murderer in your heart. Oh, you think you're not an adulterer? Have you ever considered anything close to it in your mind? You're an adulterer in your heart. And Jesus says, you need a new heart. And I need a new heart. And now we see in the Scripture the plan unfolding that makes that possible. Because Christ, in the moments to come, will go to the cross and He will die for our sin. And the Scripture tells us for all who will repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ and call Him Lord, we will be saved. And for those who refuse to do that, they will stand with Pilate and they will raise their hands and they will say, I've cleaned myself. I'm okay. This isn't on me. And yet, it's on all of us. The invitation for you and for I this morning is the invitation that the Scripture gives us On every page, it's an invitation to repent and believe. It's an invitation to stop raising your hands and say, look at me. And turn to the cross and say, look to Christ who bore the penalty for our sin. And and He stands this morning for those who've never bent their knee. And He says, repent and believe 
and be saved. And he doesn't say like Barabbas, and then we're going to have some temporal joy or revolt or everything's going to be good. He doesn't say your bank account's going to be full. He doesn't say your marriage is going to be great. He doesn't say your, your kids are going to start listening all of a sudden. He doesn't say you're going to get a raise or a promotion. He actually says, come and die with me, but live forever in glory. And the sufferings of this world will be for a, but for a moment when compared to the great light of the eternal glory of our King Christ Jesus. And if that is what the Spirit is calling you to respond to, then we want to invite you to do that. If you'll stand with me as I pray for our invitation today. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the call in your word that we are to repent and believe. And Lord, I pray for anyone here, whether they're 8 or they're 80, who perhaps up until this point has felt that they can cover their sin that they can appease you through their works, through their church attendance, through their giving, through whatever it might be. Father, help them to understand the call of the gospel, that we need to turn from our sin, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who we see in the text today, even Pilate, a pagan ruler, sees was innocent, was sinless. And yet we see your sovereign hand and that Christ went to the cross for our sin. For us who have responded to that, Lord, help us to see that repentance is not just something we do one time. We, we need to live a life of repentance. There needs to be fruit of repentance. And so, Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who perhaps has responded to the gospel and yet they find themselves this morning in sin. And maybe nobody else knows about it, but you know they know. Father, call them to repentance. Call them to, to turn from it. Help them to understand that there is... There is nothing so dark, there's no one so far gone that wasn't dealt with on the cross of Christ. Help us to respond in repentance and faith this Lord's Day. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.